Namaste, friends and listeners. Mandela here. I'm excited to start sharing podcasts again after pausing to focus on wildlife conservation. That said, I need your help. In order to keep the podcast ad-free and work towards financial independence, I'm asking folks to donate a few dollars each month. You can support my podcast and outreach programs in schools by visiting traillesstravel.net and following the link to my Patreon account, patreon.com slash traillesstraveled. Every donation helps. Thank you so much for considering to help keep this podcast and educational outreach programs available to everyone. Learn more at traillesstraveled.net. Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. This morning, the trail less traveled is being recorded in Addo Elephant Park in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. And I'm sitting here with Esther van der Merwe. Esther is a black rhino monitor for South African national parks. She's been working in this industry for over 16 years with eight years specializing in rhino. Mm-hmm. Esther, first, just want to say thank you so much for joining me here in the bush today outside your home. It's my pleasure. Let's take it back to your earliest memories. I'd love to hear about where you grew up and how adventure and conservation was a part of your childhood. So I grew up in Mpumalanga in the northern part of South Africa. It's very close to Kruger National Park. My dad is a dairy farmer, so I grew up on a dairy farm. And with the dairy industry, it's a very very concentrated job to be able to, to stay on the farm the whole time. So our only getaways was quick over the mountain. It was about an hour and a half drive to Kruger. And it was literally every opportunity my parents had, they took us into Kruger. And that was just, as long as I can remember, I said I wanted to be a game ranger I got shouted at by my grade one teacher because I didn't want to do the the writing. I was drawing pictures of lions and elephants when I was supposed to do my grade one work. So it's literally been a lifelong dream of me. And it was for me to be able to work for Sandbox, which is South African National Parks now, has been my biggest dream. So three years ago, that became a reality for me. And it's just been what I wanted to do, I can't get enough of the bush. Even if I've got leave, I'll go to Kruger from here and try and get back into the bush or go to other game reserves or just go birding or whatever. It's just, yeah, I can do about an hour max in a town and it, then I'm maxed out. <laughs> so it's literally just, uh, it's it's a passion for me. It's a lifestyle. It's it's I can't imagine doing anything other than being out here in the field with, with animals. I would love to talk to you about the black rhino and what mm. drew you to rhino in particular. Was there a moment in your childhood or how did your journey take you into the path of protecting rhino? I always wanted to work in conservation 
And I wasn't always drawn to working with people as much. I wanted to be deep into conservation. And it is a very difficult path to get into conservation in South Africa. It's a it's a very sort of specialized field and there's only so many jobs available. So I started working on monitoring projects with international volunteers. And I did that for eight years. Um, it was a, a hard job for me because I'm not a very big people's person I love working with animals but I, I decided to be able to get the experience that I needed I would do that and we sat for up to eight hours a day just observing animals I worked with lions elephants brown hyenas I spent two years full-time working with wild dogs and that gave me a lot of insight into animal behavior and it gave me the experience that I needed to be able to get into national parks. And after eight years, I just felt like I needed to change. And an opportunity came up uh, with Black Rhino in Shushlu Mfilozi National Park in KwaZulu-Natal. And my mom was absolutely petrified of me walking with Black Rhino. I'd always had a love for Black Rhino and, and leopards, I just think, are two incredible species. And it's uh, Black Rhino is... Something like a black mamba, if you say the name, people just sort of go, oh, they're dangerous things, just stay away from them, you know. And it was it was that species that no one wanted to work with them. Um, when I applied for that position, everyone else had actually pulled out of the position and for me to be able to get that position, I had to have absolutely everything that was on that job criteria and I happened to have everything that they wanted and I was thrown in the deep end, complete deep end um, working with a Zulu man called Pomondwandwe that could barely speak English. And my Zulu was very basic. I just knew the, the words of run and climb a tree and sort of that stuff. And it, it was yes, it was an eye-opener to all of a sudden be walking amongst Big Five. But yes, I just fell in love with them. Absolutely incredible animals. I'll go as far as saying that they're just as complex as elephants with their social structures. Um, they, they are extremely dangerous animals and they're feisty and it's just the fact that no one else wants to deal with them that I just was like, well, I, I seem to be good at what I do. And um, the first year, me and Pom found over 300 black rhino in about 182 sightings and all of those were on foot. And I don't think there's very many people that spend that much time on foot with black rhino. In the first four and a half years I spent with them, we did just over two and a half thousand hours on foot with Big Five. And some walks we'd encountered over 40 white rhino, elephant herds, leopards, lions, hippos, all sorts, just trying to find the black rhinos on foot. So what was incredible there was I got to see them in their natural habitat. And the KZN bush is thick, but it's still, you're able to, to track them on foot and, and see them um, ID them, um, different individuals. Uh, so I'll explain to you with the black rhinos, they are endangered and we try and identify each individual. And to do that, you sedate the animal from a helicopter. Um, it's quite a challenge to just find one, even from a helicopter. And then you've got a, a notch pattern. So you just cut little triangles into their ears. And the notch pattern system that we use, you can notch over 250 individuals and then they also naturally just tear their ears from the thickets and stuff that they live in so we keep a full record of those different individuals and they've got a name or a number depending on what park you're working in and that's how we know the individuals so if you track them on foot you try and see their ears 
Some rhinos have also got distinct horn growth shapes and things like that. We've got record of, of all of that. And then you also you record the, the cows that's got calves with them. And at the moment we try and, and notch the calves uh, around 16 to 18 months, normally from 18 months and older. Um, and then you try and notch it still whites with the mother so you can have like a full record of who belongs to who and mm-hmm. in those sort of situations. Um, so when I moved from KZN to Addo, they asked me to come and help you with their monitoring. Um, we currently got a big World Bank project, uh, investment project here in the park. Um, it's the first of its kind where people have actually invested into conservation and the outcome is based on population growth, which is positive for rhino conservation. Um, so, yeah, because of the thicket, I can't track them on foot as much as I could. In the, the Karua side, it's easier to, to track on foot, but on this side, it's it's <laughs> for the type of animal it is, you're, you're looking for trouble. You are going to get injured. So we do a lot of camera trap work, where, yeah, and then where we're missing an animal or we haven't seen an animal for a while, then we'll, we'll, we've got a little fixed wing with a pilot that flies us around, and then we focus on certain areas that we know individual rhino has been seen and then we try and track those rhino from there so in other with us focusing more on camera trapping the last three years that i've been here i've been able to learn so much more about their behavior i'm very interested in in animal behavior and the way the rhinos interact with each other um, because they are such dangerous animals a lot of people have only had one sighting of a black rhino in their lifetime and now I get the opportunity to pretty much spend hours with them because our cameras run 24-7 and um, some weeks I process up to 60,000 photos a week just to see where different individuals are where they're interacting with each other how their social structures work We've also got a DNA project currently running in the park. I've um, started to go through our historical records, figuring out family trees of the rhinos and knowing the rhinos the way I know them now on an individual level, knowing where cows with a previous calf walk, and now you know, well, this is the, actually the grandmother and this is the uh, daughters and this is her granddaughters and their great-granddaughters and you see how all of them actually interact with each other. It's very clear that they've got a matriarchal system. They've got a very complex system, um, the way th- that they interact with each other and um, certain little things that happen that you all of a sudden find a rhino on the complete opposite side of the park, whether it's a bull or a cow, and there's something social that happened that triggered that. It's extremely interesting to see them, and um, you can see how close-knit families they are. So other groups that has um, tried to translocate black rhinos into new areas as in the past made the mistake of just going in and taking any rhino out and they realized that that social structure half collapsed so by knowing your individuals knowing where they fit into the population and how um, certain animals are that key animal within a population we've learned that you can't just go in and disrupt them you have to know your population really really well in order not to disrupt them too much if you do want to take one out to start a new community somewhere else so that that's something that's really important with the monitoring is knowing your population and then on the security side we try and see every individual at least once every three months some individuals we see on a daily basis on our cameras some 
is a little bit more shy and you have to keep up with them. There's some cows that um, we expect them to, to calf and once we get to that point where you expect them to calf, then you have to either with the aeroplane or put just more effort in with camera traps in the area to try and get an accurate date of birth for the calves. So we really try and know as much as possible about our population. We've got a big database that we try and put everything in. We're still building up on the database. We want to get to the point where there's a little life history about each and every rhino. Now where they originally came from, our population is the Namibian subspecies. So a place like Kruger has got the South African subspecies. So the subspecies we've got here is Bicornis, um, Dicerus Bicornis Bicornis, and the South African subspecies is Dicerus Bicornis minor. So um, we deal with the Namibian subspecies and most of our founder animals originally came from um, Namibia. We've actually got a cow that... Um, came from Etosha, Namibia. She was taken to a zoo in Portugal and then she came with a ship onto, um, back to South Africa to Ograbi's National Park and she was eventually um, brought back to Addo again. Um, beautiful old cow and she's got such a rich history. We have to record that somewhere. And she's, she's so feisty. If you come with a helicopter to try and notch her calf, she'll charge the helicopter. She just knows that she needs to protect this calf now, even though it's for the good, for, for the, the conservation of the species. So, yeah, as you'll see, my house is completely covered in rhino. I can't get enough of them. They're, just, they're absolutely incredible animals, and every time I check the, the cameras, I just get excited to see each individual and where they're moving to and what new boyfriend the girls have got or what bulls are just growing into becoming big dominant bulls and just, yeah, the, the way they develop in their lifetime and a cow getting a first calf and that just it's incredible to just see them grow and and be safe in an environment where they should be safe in mm. esther look around in the bush where we're sitting now and describe to the person listening what's it like to be here <laughs> well we've got a actually a beautiful day in the park today it's a bit overcast but yesterday was an absolute scorcher it was up to 41 degrees in the park so we, we it was really a hot day but um, at the moment, we've got a sort of bush fault. It's called the thicket. Um, it's an extremely thick bush. Um, there's hardly anything that doesn't have a thorn on it. We've got um, spackboom all around us, which is a, a very ecologically friendly plant. They're actually one of the plants that does the highest conversion of um, CO2 gas. Um, very sort of popular at the moment in in the world is, is the spackboom plant. We've got a lot of them. They're actually flowering because we've got had lovely rains very recently, um, beautiful pink flowers, and then all the birds you can hear around us. There's so many different birds here. I've recorded up to um, 54 birds in my garden before different birds. Um, so, yeah, it's just absolutely stunning day in the bush, and just on the other side of the fence we've got um, some elephants and buffalo feeding in the bushes at the moment. So just lovely, tranquil scene. I would love to talk to you more about conservation in South Africa. Mm. Conservation is, is challenging in South Africa. Um, we've got a very high population of people. Um, so unlike in national parks in other, other parts of the world, our, our national parks are all fenced because we've got so many people living on the boundaries of our national parks. And as soon as you put a fence around an area, you then have to manage that area. 
and make sure that you don't overpopulate the area. So whether you donate animals or you do contraception on the animals or you, you try and find more suitable habitat for them that's safe. Um, there's a very big project in South Africa that move um, black rhino to new areas and try and, and just grow their numbers and it's been su- extremely successful. One of the challenges they do face is um, suitable habitat that is safe for rhinos um, because of the the rhino poaching crisis we're fo- facing at the moment. You can't just move a rhino into your area. You have to make sure that it's not just in the past you were just looking at, at great habitat that will be great for the actual species that you're dealing with, but now you have to consider the security as well. Um, they are, especially in the north, they're being slaughtered at the moment for their horns. Um, the demand is from the east, and it's very unfortunate. Um, there's some of our national parks that have very little rhino left because of it. So that's one thing you need to consider. Um, and when it comes to a species such as an elephant, like rhinos and elephants are both mega herbivores. They're very um, beneficiary to the environment. They they make new settings by breaking trees for smaller um, insects and reptiles and all that sort of stuff. And they do nutrient recycling. So they're very positive in that sense. But if you have a closed environment, then you have to look at the, the numbers. So um, whether it is just moving some of your rhinos to a different section of the park or trying to establish new populations. With the elephants, we're currently doing elephant contraception. And that's once a year um, you focus on the big cows within the area. There's a contraceptive drug that's actually um, just stops them from breeding for a while it doesn't stop them entirely because you can't always contracept every single elephant you're you're gonna miss one year or there and it's it's a good thing to have still a few calves coming through but um not just having mass amounts coming through because they're all gonna either start killing each other for territories or they're gonna start breaking out into the communities and you're gonna have that issue with um, community relations um, and it's it, it's literally all of our national parks have big communities on the boundaries so you have to have fences that keep big five animals in your lions and your elephants and things like that can't venture into the, the environment outside of the park so we have our, our field rangers are always patrolling the fences checking that the voltage on the fences is up it's up to 9,000 volts it has to be up there there's, there's regulations for for national parks and for for even just game farm owners that has dangerous game, um, which is considered animals that can kill a human. Mm. And that's buffalo, elephants, lions, leopards, rhinos, um, even ostriches in some parts are considered dangerous game because of their sort of behavior. So we... That is a part of conservation is always just keeping your communities happy on the on your boundaries. That in turn sometimes gives you meat poaching, it brings in rhino poaching. Um so there's there's conflict sometimes, but it is important to keep good relations with your communities just outside your fences and then also just um there's so much public pressure at the moment with with um conservation and the way we do conservation and, and all of that. So trying to educate the general public also that what we do in conservation is for the best of the animals. We'll never make a decision that will be detrimental to, to animals. Um, so lions also, our lions are contracepted. Um, you can't have mass amounts of predators running around annihilating all your, your prey species. So there's so much little components in there that you need to consider. And you need to do it with a 
an open mind and for the for the good of the population that you're dealing with you can't just love elephants and only keep the elephants in and make sure that the elephants are happy but your rhino numbers are, are decreasing and your all your other species don't have water to drink even um ado's got a big um, problem with our main camp section that's the main tourist section doesn't have any natural water in it every single drop of water is pumped into the the systems and we've got um, water exclosure areas where we've put electricity around certain water holes and some people take offense to it but if you don't give uh, the zebras and the rhinos and all the other game species a, a place a safe place to drink they'll never be able to get to water elephants will just keep them away and we've seen that in the past where there wasn't water exposure areas where animals have actually dried of died of thirst right next to the waterhole because the elephants just keep pushing everything away so you need to consider other animals as well conservation is about conserving everything from the smallest little frog to the biggest elephant and and it you have to keep an an open mind you can't get your your um feelings cloud your judgment when you need to to make um proper conservation decisions and that's not saying it's a horrible thing it's it's good to to look at nature and see what happens in nature on a daily basis and also consider that in your conservation practices and i think sometimes it's hard for people to to just get too attached to an animal and um sometimes an animal's injured and you can't save it and unfortunately it has to be euthanized in a in a respectful way and it's not nice for any one of us when that has to happen i've seen very big conservationists that had to put a rhino down after a a poacher had hacked off his face off and it's it's a man that i've got great respect for and he's been a vet in south africa for many years and you see the tears running down that guy's face and it's so so hard to to see someone that's got so much passion for conservation having to do such a horrible thing we want to save every animal that we can but sometimes it's just not possible um but yeah in ada we've got such a great conservation team and everyone is so passionate about conservation and you can hear it when you talk to people of how much they want to do and how much they want to improve our our conservation practices and and we learn every year um just to give you an example with a contraception we've got the the fixed wing now that we do the the rhino monitoring with and we use it as a spotter plane when we do our rhino notching to save money on on the helicopter cost because the helicopters cost a lot of money to run so now we use the spotter plane to look for the specific rhinos that we're looking for and the helicopter only takes off to come and physically do the the um notching with the rhino and then we land it again and we started using the the fixed wing with the elephant contraception also now to make sure that we we cover all the elephant herds and and we can help the helicopter because the elephants in general it's very stressful for them they run in all directions and it's not nice even for the contraception team to have to put that that stress on the elephants but it is for their good and we cut the the amount of time off with an hour and a half this year just by using the spotter plane along with the helicopter and that's reduced the amount of stress that we've put on on the elephant so every year we're learning how to do things better and and more efficiently and save costs and there's always that issue of not having enough funding for for conservation but but we've got so many passionate people and they they pull 
they pull funds out of places that you can't imagine. And the more good you do, the more willing people will be there to put money out there for you, for the, for the money you need to be able to do the work that you, that you do need to do out there. Um, we're currently getting more funding for the DNA work that we're doing, and we've got a, a lovely lady that's even willing to do sometimes the, the analysis for us for free just because she knows it's for a good cause out there. So, yeah, just building relations and making sure that everyone you work with is the guys that want to do good and they they also safe for the animals. That's one thing that we need to consider these days. Anyone from the outside you bring in is going to be someone that... that is clear. <laughs> There's no criminal record in the back there or no sinister sort of um, ideas. So, yeah, unfortunately, we live in that world now. But, um, yeah, we've got some very passionate people and I'm really enjoying Addo. It's it's an amazing park. It's very underrated. I've always wondered why um, not more people flock to Addo, but as soon as someone has been here for the first time, then they just can't get enough. There's nowhere in the world that you'll be able to see elephants be so relaxed around cars as they are in Addo. Um, I've learned so much about elephant behavior and um, just they've learned know me as well. Um, I check the cameras on a weekly basis and you can see an animal recognize you as you go past. Elephants know the way you drive, they know your scent. I mean, they're incredible with scent and the way they communicate with each other. So I know even if, a, if an elephant knows I'm there, if I drive in a different vehicle than what I normally drive for work, I can see an elephant walk past and then they stop and you can see them sniffing. And they're like, oh, you're, you're here now, but you're not in your normal vehicle. So they, they're incredible animals. They're so intelligent. Esther, I really liked what you said about conservation and the big picture mm. and having an open mind. Mm. And seeing the connection between everything, you mm-hmm. know, and how we can all coexist. Mm-hmm. It's a challenge. Sometimes it feels like an uphill battle, I'm sure. Yeah, no, definitely. But I'm really grateful for what you do. Esther, let's just kind of talk a little bit about poaching, what mm-hmm. you can share with us about poaching. Mm-hmm. It's my understanding that in South Africa, unfortunately, every 24 hours, a rhino mm-hmm. was poached. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so poaching is a, it's such a horrible thing. Um, I found a lot more dead rhinos in my time than I've, I've, I've wanted to. Um, there was, in the past, a number of years ago, there was a poaching crisis and then it was sort of, it rhino numbers climbed again and then all of a sudden the um, poaching started again. And in the past it was believed, yeah, it's, it's just someone living close to the park that doesn't have a lot of money and that person just um, is just trying to make a living and it's all of that sort of excuses. Um, poaching has changed in the in the last couple of years and it is it's run by organized crime syndicates um, and those are just money hungry people. Um, we know some of these poaching kingpins as they refer to um, hold big parties with drugs and um, very expensive alcohol, um, prostitutes and things like that. So a lot of the money goes on fancy cars and those sort of things. We know that a lot of those kingpins are also involved in other organized crime within South Africa. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult situation that a lot of our guys are in. And, and if you talk to conservationists that had to go into pretty much a bush war because there's nothing you can't call it anything other than a bush war Um, most of those guys suffer from post-traumatic stress 
Um, they've had to see some horrible things in their time, and it's not just seeing a human um, dead in the field because they've shot at our field rangers and our field rangers had to defend themselves. It's also seeing people being trampled by elephants and being spread over 80 meters. Um, that's traumatic for a human to see that. And no one that's gone into conservation has gone into conservation to to have to fight the war in the field. That's not what they out there for conservation for. So it's very hard on the, the guys that's actually on the security side. Um, it's much easier for me to be on the monitoring side and just to have to deal with a nice part of, of the job. But there is the security side and it's um, we've got laws in place and it it's to protect our own people as well. And there has been incidents where people have been killed in the field, but it's not, it's never on what we wanted. We want to arrest people and convict them in courts and we've had great success with that um, across the board. And it's not just for for our park, but it's for provincial parks and for, for private parks in, in the country that's got rhino as well. And at the moment, that's the, the biggest focus. There is elephant poaching starting to creep in again. Um, it's been quiet for a number of years with elephant poaching, um, but it's starting to, to pick up. Even lion poaching, um, the tiger tiger bone trade and the lion bone trade is, is hectic, and that's starting to pick up in certain parts of South Africa. So it's it's escalating to, to bigger things. It's not just the rhinos anymore. Pangolins are more poached than anything else. Much traffic animal. And there's such... Um, innocent little animals i've got a friend up north that works with them on a daily basis and and yeah the the things he sees is just as horrible so it's it's a number of animals and the the demand is all from one side it's all from the east um and it's i think it's a it's a convenient excuse to say that it's a traditional thing because it is it's money driven from south africa it is money driven there's corruption in place it's corrupted some of our courts, um, corrupted a lot of officials. Um, it's a very difficult thing to fight at the moment because it's not just for the guys on the ground to protect the rhinos from the actual guys coming to shoot and kill them. Um, there's been crime scenes that's been um, just um, ruined by corrupt officials. There's been evidence that's gone missing by corrupt police officers. Um, there's been cases dismissed in courts because of corrupt lawyers and um, judges so it goes up much further than just the guys having to deal with with what we see on the ground um, I've seen the frustration I've I've been there where you're walking with a field ranger that is corrupt and you're scared to even turn your back on that guy because you don't know if he might shoot you um, there's a lot of things that people on the ground face um, around the poaching that's not nice and it's not it's been going on for so long that a lot of people don't even want to hear about rhino poaching anymore because it, so much money has been pumped in there and I think um, like a place like Kruger has they've got so much experience now to deal with it and they've learned that there's so many different avenues that you have to cover it's not just having someone on the ground there that is going to protect that rhino you have to have people at the top that deals with your court cases you have to have um, guys at the gate dealing with stuff you have to have um, uh, polygraphs to make sure that your guys that is actually supposed to protect the rhinos are not corrupted there's so many aspects to it um, and it's not a simple thing it's not a um, 
oh, you just do this and it will sort it out. There's there's literally military strategies happening on a daily basis on the back. You'll drive on all the roads in South Africa and you'll see that the farmers have put up cameras to deal with stock theft because that's gone through the roof with COVID and job losses and those have all got number plate recognition on it. They sit in... Um, those are, those cameras are all over our areas, and that helps not just with with the poaching crisis that people are facing, whether it's meat poaching or rhino poaching or whatever. It's also helping farmers dealing with their issues. It's helping with farm murders. It's helping with just the general crime because South Africa's got so much crime. Um, it, it's been positive in, in communities taking hands and trying to fight it all together, um, but there's costs involved. Um, the cost around security in our national parks where in the past you'd ask for funding just to be able to do your contraception work or your notching work and now you need twice as much money because you need cameras in places Um, you'll see when you go to uh, through our um, gates now they scan the car's registration number and your driver's license Um, and it's increased security that's been made possible by our world bank project now to try and protect what we've got inside the park um, you'll think, oh, the the most thing here is you need to protect your rhinos and your elephants. But we've had um, known reptile poachers come into the park that we've had to keep an eye on. Um, the East is very big on poaching succulents at the moment, poaching um, reptiles for private collectors. It's just a never-ending thing. It just keeps going and going and going. And just as you think now we've dealt with this, this situation now, then the next thing comes in. Um, and it's you can even see it with traditional healers in South Africa. One of them will all of a sudden say, "Now a vulture has got this this sort of healing capability," and then all of a sudden we lose three hundred protected vultures because of it. It's it's just the one thing just calls the next one, and and poverty makes it harder to deal with things because everyone wants to make a quick buck out of something. So yeah, it is it is a hard thing to deal with. Um, it's horrible to see a rhino standing there with his face hacked off and he's not even dead yet. Um, he's slowly bleeding to death. You see a calf um, that has been luckily rescued next to its mother. There's an amazing story from um, Care for Wild, the uh, rehabilitation centre that's looked after um, rhino orphans and they've, they've been so successful and it, it's... In, in rehabilitating those animals and they've actually got a number of rhino now that was rhino orphans that's actually given birth to their first calves and in, in a safe haven um, but it's it's sad to know that those rhinos sometimes have to grow to the age of seven or eight some of our cow, cows only started calving at 10 years old to know that it's been going on for so many years that those poor orphans are now old enough to finally give birth to themselves and you know how many thousands of rhinos have been slaughtered in the meantime. And luckily those few have been saved. Um, there's an amazing story of a small rhino called Daisy that was a couple of hours old when they found her. And she's just turned one now. Um, it's a success story for rhino conservation. But the, the tears that has flown and the thousands have gone into trying to protect the ones in the meantime with just getting this one rhino to the age of one years old. Um, it's it's heartbreaking to see it. It really is. Um, I really have found a lot of rhino carcasses. I've seen freshly poached rhino. I've had field rangers in the field with me. 
that was involved in the actual rhino that was poached and I've seen the frustration of standing there and you know which field rangers that's standing around that carcass has actually pulled the string for that rhino to be dead. You see the frustration on the section ranger's face. That rhino is not cold yet, but you have to remove the horn because it cannot stay there. Um, and then you don't even know if that horn goes into a safe, even if it is weighed and measured and tagged, whether there won't be a correct official going forward that might be, you know, diverting it somewhere. It's it's very hard um, standing there and you know you can't even say everything that you saw that day because that's confident information that might be used in a court case going forward and um, one of those guys were actually dismissed after that case and not long after that they caught him in, in a neighboring park trying to poach a rhino there so it's hard you're trying to do your work you're trying to to work on this endangered species you're trying to protect all the species around you but there might be someone walking next to you that that is a part of it um, yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult situation to be in at the moment. But um, just there's such amazing people out there that sometimes I don't know how the, the guys that work on the security side get through a daily basis with the things that they deal with. But luckily we've got passionate people, people that want to fight the good cause, and they're still doing an amazing job regardless of what's happening out there on, on a daily basis. I was wondering if you could share with whoever's listening out there what they can do to help. So working with international volunteers for many years, um, we often had the, the conversations of people being really offended by hunting and certain conservation practices, not just hunting, all sorts, whether it is um, having to do contraception on animals to try and control the numbers. Very often people are are offended by certain things within conservation. Um, doesn't matter what it is, it could be various different things. Um, I always said to my volunteers, and we often had the conversations, just explaining to them what different conservation practices is. And, and people still say, I don't like it. And I said to them, you don't have to like it. You just have to try and understand why people do the thing. So instead of just being part of that, a very big part of, of the outside world at the moment is just you heard someone say something and instead of actually going and trying to understand what is the reason behind it, you just condemn it. And if you understand why certain things are done, it will broaden your knowledge on nature conservation and and various practices that is out there so you really don't have to like things there's a lot of things I don't like but I still understand it and I still support it because of the good it does in the background and it it can be a lot of different things um, but you need to understand its place in the world um, I'm not a fan of of politics at all I don't want anything to do with it but I know there has to be some sort of it out there to control certain issues in the world and it's the same with conservation you need to try and understand um, and by people understanding why we do certain things we'll get more support globally um, for the, the money we need to be able to do certain work um, it will make our lives easier in terms of the backlash you get sometimes for doing something good and then someone just condemns it, but they don't even understand. Um, I've had 
people on Facebook actually send me private horrible messages of me sitting next to a lion that was actually sedated and this person just started shouting and swearing at me saying what a horrible person I was for killing this animal but if you look at the picture that lion had a blindfold over his eyes we put a collar on it so we could monitor its movements and that's just an example of someone just lashing out without actually knowing anything about conservation so that's the one thing is education educate yourself try and just understand practices out there without condemning it and another thing is 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 financial help there's a lot of organizations out there that do fantastic work and the funds that come in is wonderful for them um, stop rhino poaching is one of our biggest supporters within south african national parks um, Care for Wild is the rhino um, sanctuary I spoke about earlier that do great work for conservation. There's really wonderful organizations out there. Um, Wilderness Foundation Africa is one of our partners that do great work for conservation. Um, OLLI is also a local NGO that, that help us in the Eastern Cape. So there's a number of NGOs out there that's reputable companies. There is the chance takers, unfortunately, within this sort of sector. But there is people that just, any time we need something, we can press on that button and we'll have the equipment that we need or they'll be there. Um, and you can see even their progress on social media on a daily basis. They'll tell you how certain animals are improving, um, yeah, there's those sort of organizations that is the, the support organizations to national parks um, and helping those, those organizations is also indirectly helping us. Um, but just at the moment, our tourism are, are down. It's slowly starting to pick up after COVID. It was, it was lovely for me to drive around the park and had the entire park to myself with COVID, but it wasn't helping the funding coming in for conservation. So there is issues within South Africa, but just coming to visit and appreciating our national parks, that's indirectly helping us to, to be able to protect the species just by having visitors and having those visitors enjoy the wildlife because that's what they're here for, is for generations to enjoy and to be protected. And um, yeah, that directly comes into to buy more land. South African National Parks is very big on having a section of um, park expansion. Um, we're currently busy expanding the park where we can. Um, if someone offers a piece of land and the park can buy it, they will buy it to try and just have bigger protected areas. That's the ultimate, is having that sort of natural system that you don't need to interfere with it as much. And as more land you can get, the more you can actually um, protect species and just do it in a more natural way. You know about animal behavior and you know how um, intuitive animals are. And like, for example, I grew up riding horses and horses always can tell if you're, if you're scared. And you mm. have worked with rhinos on foot mm. and I'm sure they can tell if you're scared. When you're in the bush and you're interacting with a rhino that you need to monitor, how do you mm. handle fear in that situation? I don't think you can ever put fear out of it it's we've got a very big saying and and you'll you'll hear it from guides and anyone that works in the bush as soon as you lose your fear for wildlife you're actually in danger because that's when you get hurt um i think a very healthy respect for nature is a very big thing um i am completely comfortable walking in into black rhino even without having a rifle in my hand and it's never that rifle's never there to, that you're going to shoot the animal it's going to be a warning shot into the ground if you really can't do anything else to to veer that animal away from you um, but knowledge is what makes you safe out there 
um, it's using your knowledge of the bush. And um, I've often, if someone comes out with me and I tell them, this is what you need to do. If I tell you, you need to do this, you need to listen. If I realize that that person has got a hearing problem in terms of they don't listen to what mm. you tell them, I will call off the mission straight away. Because listening to what the person says to you that's in charge or listening to your environment, the smells you encounter, the, the sounds you hear, that's what keeps you safe out there. And the more you spend time out in the bush, the more certain things will trigger you. Um, someone going out there might see a pile of dung and they might think, oh, an animal pooped here. But the freshness of that dung will tell you how close or how far you away from that animal. And if you can interpret those sort of tracks and smells and sometimes I've just heard a rhino chewing in the bushes next to me. It's as thick as it is here. I've never been able to see that rhino. I just heard it and it ran away. But that's what saved me in that situation was just listening, actually listening. Your ears and your scent is more important in the bush than your actual sight because you you smell and hear an animal sometimes long before you actually see them. So those sort of things help to control the fear out there. But it's the same as someone falling off a horse. I had an incident where a buffalo charged me on foot and it actually injured a person that was with me. And after that incident, I was absolutely fearful of buffalo and I still have a very big respect for them. But I took a week off and I collected myself and as scared as I was, I stood there shaking, seeing every buffalo after that incident. I pushed myself to get over that fear again. If you fall off a horse, you have to get back up and you have to keep getting yourself into that situation. So fear is not an easy thing. I think um, I've always been a bit of a um, wild, wild child growing up. Um, but that, that sort of helped me, I think, in the, the situations I've in. And, and even a lot of difficulty that was throwing towards me as a child, um, growing up, struggling with social situations and things like that. I was always a bit of, you know, you just you put your head down and you push through it. And I'm grateful that that has taught me to be able to handle animals growing forward in life. Um, so I'm very big in growing and pushing myself to grow as a human. And I think as much as you push yourself and learn from situations, if you can acknowledge mistakes you've made in the past, that automatically puts you into a growing situation. And just anything that life throws at you, you keep pushing forward and you keep growing apart from that. People always said, you as a little white girl will never be able to do the work that you do with Black Rhino. And women across South Africa has actually proven that some of the best rhino monitors that's been out there has been women. And I think it's because we've got a very strong feeling towards nature we understand nature we're compassionate towards nature and um, we've got very big perception into nature and it doesn't make anyone else bad at the job um, there's just so many women that I know that's got very big names currently with black rhino conservation across South Africa um, including our, our new um, head ranger for Kruger Kathy Dreyer that's just so passionate about um black rhino in particular and it's just I think it's something woman-wise so someone can't tell you if you're a woman you can't do it um, as a human if you want to do something go out and do it there's nothing in this world that can stop you apart from yourself
Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series. Tonight's episode was recorded in Addo Elephant Park in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. I would like to thank Esther van der Merwe for her tireless work monitoring black rhinos for South African national parks. Esther observes and monitors black rhinos on the ground. She is, by far, one of the most incredible women I have ever met. And I will never forget the experience of interviewing her at her home in the bush within a few hundred feet of grazing elephants and rhinos. The Trail Less Traveled premieres every Sunday evening at 6. You can stream it live online at trail1033.com. And you can check out the full show archive, learn about our outreach programs, and get in touch with me by visiting traillesstraveled.net. My adventure tip this evening relates to animal behavior, in particular, the difference between the charge of a white rhino versus the charge of a black rhino. During my time with Esther, I learned that black rhinos have an incredible ability to maneuver and often do false charges. White rhinos, on the other hand, tend to continue charging in a straight line, and it's often not a false charge. So if you find yourself in a situation where you're being charged by a rhino, try to make a sharp 90 degree turn and hide behind a rock or a tree. And if you manage to survive the encounter, please do your best to learn from the situation and the animal's behavior so you don't put yourself in a similar situation again in the future. Remember, it's our responsibility to respect wildlife, especially when we are in their home and there is a potential that they might feel threatened by our presence. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Get engaged, use your voice, and speak up for the resources and the wildlife that you love so much. And as always, get outside and shred the gnar. Because as you know, the thing about the gnar is, it doesn't shred itself. <laughs>